Good to have everyone here, and our numbers will grow as the dawn progresses, I'm sure. Um, it's a great privilege to invite David Jackman to come and speak in just a moment or two, and uh, he's been a great friend to Burning Man over recent history, for which we're very grateful indeed. I think I was reflecting on the way over as the uh, cold wind was waking me up, and I was reflecting on the things I most appreciate about David's ministry and his preaching. And I think with some people's preaching, you feel that emotion drives it, and people leave thinking, that was inspiring, and yet it, it evaporates very quickly when Monday morning comes around. With David, we don't have that. We have him driving um, our motivation to change with the mind and uh, logical uh, flow of the passage. And I think it's just fantastic. It's the kind of Bible teaching that lasts in the difficulties of the Monday morning and the rigors of the rest of the week. So, David, we're much looking forward to having you come and speak. Last time we were praying for a video project. You were putting lots of the Cornhill training course teaching on video, and you're saying that's in hand, um, but still progressing. So we could pray for that in our groups for David at the end, and also for the Evangelical Ministry Assembly, which some of you may know about, a gathering of... um, 1,200, you're saying, this year, ministers and others in word ministry gathering to be encouraged by various speakers from around the world in central London, and we could pray in in two weeks' time um, in the Barbican. So do remember those things to pray for David as we pray for our groups. But for the moment, shall I pray for you, David, and uh, then we'll dive into 2 Timothy. Heavenly Father, we remember that the unfolding of your words brings light. And we pray that you would do just that now for us. Unfold these precious words of 2 Timothy to us and bring light where currently we cannot see correctly where there's darkness. Would you change us and equip us for today and the rest of this week? For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. David, over to you. Well, thank you so much for your welcome. It's always a joy to come. Great to see you this uh, wonderful morning. And we're going to uh, pick up the threads in 2 Timothy. So if you'd like to grab the Bible that's in the chair back, uh, we'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and uh, read the second half of the chapter beginning from verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 2 at the 14th verse. Paul writes, keep reminding them of these things, the things that uh, you looked at last time, I guess, the centrality of Christ and our union, our oneness with him. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and... Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. 
If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is a letter, as you know, because we're halfway through now, to Timothy, the pastor-teacher in Ephesus, on the younger side, but not necessarily very young, and uh, someone who is coping with pretty big problems in the church where Paul has placed him, where God has placed him through Paul. I just think it's important at the beginning to say that we are not Timothy. Uh, Sometimes when we take um, Bible books uh, and there's a strong character in the story or it's addressed to someone like Timothy or Titus, uh, we're tempted to say, well, where are the points of connection? In, in, a, in a book like this, of course, there will be many things that we're to learn from it and many things that will be applicable to us. But it is written primarily to someone who is described here as the servant of the Lord. Uh, at the end of chapter 3, he's described as the man of God, which is a, almost a technical term for the pastor teacher who is responsible for the leadership of the local church. That's primary focus in the letter. But if that's not us, it doesn't mean to say the letter has nothing to say to us because the Bible is God's book about God. And before it's his book about us and our situation, it's the book that reveals to us the character, the purposes, the mind of God. So when we apply a book like this, it's quite important that we keep the original focus in view so that we don't just assume everything immediately applies to our situation, but that we see what God is telling Timothy will reveal things about God that we need to know in our situation. Qualities for our leadership in the church, many of us have responsibilities, particularly leadership in our families, particularly leadership in the spheres of influence that we have in the community, at work, wherever it may be. The man of God, of course, is not exclusive to a pastor-teacher like Timothy. Uh, The burning men... Um, name means that we all want to be men of God in the place where he's placed us. But we may have to do just a little bit of uh, thinking about how does this apply to us? Um, Because, for example, those last few verses about being able to teach and not resentful and gently instructing those who have lost their way, that's true of every Christian. But it's especially true of the person who's responsible for leadership in the local church. Now, the New Testament always links belief and behavior, testimony and experience, with practice, with truth that is worked out in love. And much of the great doctrinal teaching of the New Testament comes out of practical down-to-earth issues about living a godly life in an alienated, even hostile world. So this final letter of Paul is no exception to that. The big thesis is that if we really love Christ and the gospel, 
then we must follow and obey him. We must not only love the gospel, but we must live the gospel. And those are the two things that I want us to focus on as ways into this text this morning. Because in the Christian life, the way into the Christian life is the way on in the Christian life. Uh, We don't start by grace and go on to works. It's grace all the way through. And the grace of God that reached us in Christ and rescued us is the grace of God that will equip us and enable us to live the gospel day by day. And we need to stress that because we so easily separate them, don't we? We compartmentalize the two. We affirm our faith, we say the right things, we accommodate to our Christian peer groups, but the real test is the living of the life, moment by moment, day by day. And saying something is so doesn't make it so. There's a rather amusing story that's told, I imagine it's totally fictional, about um, a time about 100 years ago when there were two princes uh, in Buckingham Palace, who one day escaped to play football in St. James's Park. At that time, uh, apparently there were notices saying no ball games in the park, and so they were apprehended by the ever-vigilant Bobby, who said, young men, uh, I'm going to have to take your names down and report you to your parents. By this time, they'd acquired a third boy who was in the park, and the three of them were up before the Bobby. And so the first one was asked, what is your name? And he said, please, sir, the Prince of Wales. So he wrote in his book, The Prince of Wales, and where do you live? Buckingham Palace. Uh, number two boy, please, sir, the Duke of York. Uh, so he writes in his book, The Duke of York, where do you, oh yes, Buckingham Palace, yes, yes. And the third boy, whose jaw by now has dropped open, uh, thinks, well, if they can get away with it, I can get away with it. <laughs> so he, the Bobby says to him, and what about you, young man, what's your name? Please, sir, the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> now, saying it so doesn't make it so. So what we've got to do is to work through the externals to the internal godliness that Paul is wanting to see in Timothy and that God is wanting to see in us. Let's look then firstly at loving Christ and the gospel in verses 14 to 19. As I've said, the church in Ephesus is not without problems. Problems of drift, problems of distortion, problems even of denial of the message. Hymenaeus and Philetus have decided that there is no future resurrection. Probably they meant that their conversion was their resurrection and they had no hope beyond this world in terms of bodily resurrection. That would be a very uh, typical of the first century world in many ways. But these short epistles at the end of the New Testament um, are written all, all really with the same concern because, you see, the apostolic uh, generation is dying out. Paul is about to face martyrdom, other apostles facing that or facing death in the natural uh, run of things. And how is the church going to be kept when there are no living apostles who have seen and witnessed the Lord Jesus? And so these last few letters, the pastorals, the letters of John, the letters of Peter, have as their great theme that we must continue to hold on to the gospel and continue to hold out the gospel. So what they're saying, uh, Jude is another letter like that, is don't give up on the gospel, hold on to it, and make sure that you hold on to it by giving it away. Because the way that you hold on to the gospel is by giving the gospel, by holding it out to others. And uh, therefore, there's this very practical line that runs all through it, um, uh, to... uh, Nerve Timothy to stand firm, not to compromise, not to give up, 
but to provide a model for all the believers whom he's in touch with, even when the opposition seems overwhelming, even when it seems to be within the church and dividing the church, hold on to the gospel and keep holding out the gospel. First of all, he says there's something to avoid in verse 14. Warn them against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. And jump to verse 16. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. So quarrels about words, godless chatter. Instead of holding to the great spiritual truths, holding out the gospel, it seems as though the energy was being diverted into peripheral matters. There uh, were controversies going on in the church. Um, People were behaving in ungodly ways in the controversies. People like Hymenaeus and Philetus were leading others astray. And there was obviously a great deal of um, turmoil and discussion, division over these things. Now, of course, he's said to Timothy already that he's got to guard the gospel. He's got to refute false teaching, but not to be nitpicking, not to be wasting his time and energy on peripheral things, which, as he says, lead to ruin. The word is really catastrophe. It only ruins the church and ruins those who give themselves to it. So he's very keen that Timothy doesn't get sort of dragged into that vortex, that Um, this spreading infection, he calls it like gangrene, which could take over the church and ruin the church in Ephesus, uh, which could open them to more false teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus, which could lead them to be influenced by dominant personalities who bully their way into positions of authority. All of those things are in view here, and he says it will only ruin you and those who get involved in it. It will shipwreck your faith. Because what's happened is, well, he says about Hymenaeus and Philetus that they have wandered away. Literally, they have swerved off course. They're no longer following the truth as it was revealed through the Lord Jesus to the apostles. So he says, Timothy, don't get on that slippery slope. Watch what you say and be careful what you listen to and avoid these senseless controversies which will mar you in discussions and differences that will not strengthen the witness. Well, there's the negative, but look at 15. Not only is there something to avoid, but there's something to attempt. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Here's the great counteractive principle then. Uh, Always, of course, in the New Testament, the negatives, the positives, uh, working together. So he says, if you want to be approved by God, and what a wonderful thought that would be, a workman who is approved by God. If you love Christ and the gospel, well then, get stuck into your Bible, is what he's saying. Be someone who correctly handles the word of truth. What does that involve? Well, notice in the verse, it involves hard work, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Uh, You see, the Bible doesn't yield its treasures on the backstroke. Uh, You don't become a workman in the Bible by 10 minutes on the internet occasionally. You have to give yourself to the Bible on a daily basis. That doesn't mean that you have to have huge amounts of time, but it does mean that we need personal discipline and focus to hear what God is saying in the word of truth. 
Now, that is supremely true for leaders. Um, That is why they spend their time in the word and in prayer so that they can feed the flock. But it's true of all of us, isn't it, that we need to be better handlers of God's word. And as I say, that requires personal discipline, uh, the daily discipline of working out how we're going to become workmen who do not need to be ashamed. The Burning Man title, of course, comes from Didn't Our Hearts Burn Within Us as He Opened to Us the Scriptures. And so as we become handlers of the word of truth, we want to be those who correctly handle it and who don't need to be ashamed before God because he has given to us this huge resource of the 66 books of the Bible. And we just want to, I want to encourage you and hope you will be strengthened this morning to think, how can I give a bit more time, energy, focus to my Bible study? I mean, is there an hour in the week that you could give yourself the luxury of listening to God in his word and responding to it? And is there an hour in the week when you could look after the kids and give your wife the luxury of doing that? I say it's a luxury, but of course, really, it's an essential. I mean, we say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly find another hour in the week. But if we looked hard and if we prayed about it, maybe we'd start with half an hour. But the problem with half an hour is you'll soon want an hour. The more you get into the word of truth, the more it grips you, the more it encourages, challenges, builds you up. And, of course, the more you use it, the better you handle it. So with any tool, isn't it? The more practice you get, the more skilled workman you are. But as I say, that doesn't come just a few minutes occasionally snatched. But most of our days, that's all we can do. So let's have somewhere in the week where we give that extra time to correctly handling the word of truth. I'm always thankful that when I was a student, someone told me that the best guy, the best help to Bible study is an empty notebook. If you buy an empty notebook and you study the Bible and write into it the things that God's saying to you day by day, That is the best aid to Bible study that you'll ever have. I know we can buy commentaries, thank God for them, and people write books that are very helpful to us, but actually listening to God in the Word and writing something down that he said to you. Now, you can't necessarily do that every day, but you can do it once a week. You can have your Bible study time, and uh, you will find it nurtures you and encourages you and roots you, grounds you in a way that nothing else will really. And as I say, don't be selfish. Think about when can your wife do it as well. You say, well, we, we, we can do it together. Yeah, that would be great. But probably it's better, actually, that we each have our own personal times in the word of God. And then the natural thing is to pray it into our lives. So you need to leave some time for praying. Maybe that's something we ought to think about uh, this morning particularly, something to attempt here, that we might become workmen who don't need to be ashamed. And the correctly handling uh, has with it the idea of cutting a straight furrow. So you know those ploughing competitions that they sometimes have um, out in the country where where the thing is judged by how straight the furrow is. It's that sort of image here. How straight is our life, is my life, because of the word of God giving me a clear line, no deviation, um, no need to be ashamed if we're working at it. I remember a guy was converted in my church in Southampton, and he said to me after about three months, how long does it take to do Bible teaching like this? Do you think I could be there in another six months? Um, Probably not, actually, because it does take quite a long time to learn to cut the straight furrow. But the great thing is, are you you doing it? Are Are you growing? 
Are you learning? God approves that. What God wants is for us to be working at his word. So just a a word to the wise. What Bible reading program do you have? Has it all disintegrated? What are you doing about your Bible study? Very important that if we love Christ, we love his word, and whether that is in in our own lives, our family lives, our church lives, we won't be blown around by all the latest fads and fancies if we're working at the word of God. And after all, when you get to heaven and Obadiah rolls up to you and says, "Um, did you enjoy my little book? You don't want to be too embarrassed, do you? Say, I'm sorry, I never really got round to it. There are 66 of these books, and that's a lifetime's work for most of us. But isn't it exciting that God speaks to us on every page and that we can be workmen who rightly are approved by God because we rightly handle the word of truth? So something to avoid, something to attempt, and something to affirm Verse 19, the Lord's foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. He knows those who are his. So the Bible gives you God's foundation. It's solid rock. Uh, It's that on which we build our lives. And that quote, the Lord knows those who are his, comes from the book of Numbers in the time of Korah's rebellion, when God, um, he vindicated Moses and Aaron as his servants in terms of their separation to God and their separation from the iniquities of Israel. So I think what he's talking about here is is the mark of our lives being godliness, holiness, call it Christ-likeness, departing from iniquity. Because we can't love the Lord and love sin, though of course we do because we're still sinful people. But there is an illogicality about that, isn't there? That's the battle that we're involved in. We still fall, we still fail. We're not able to be sinless in this world because of our sinful nature. But we can sin less. And if we remain rooted and grounded in God's truth, it will have that effect upon us. So that when we do fall, we'll very quickly realize it. We'll come back to the Lord. We'll say, Lord, it's me again. And this is something that's happened again in my life. And You know I'm fighting this battle because we all have our own private battles against particular weaknesses and sins and dispositions and so on. And that's what the Christian life's like. It's always going to be wrestling and fighting and pray. Um, You know, when we say uh, fight against the world, the flesh and the devil, that's not just words, that's daily life. So that in our Christian experience, the battle is always on. We'll never get to the stage where we are perfect in this life. But we are people who are built on the foundation. The Lord knows us if we're trusting Jesus. And our love for him means that we confess the name of the Lord and we seek increasingly to turn away from wickedness. Of course, in the history of the church, there have been many times when people have been seduced by this idea into thinking that it would be possible to be sinless in this world. And... uh, that uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have to wrestle and fight and pray and if that battle between the world and the flesh and the devil, between the spirit within us and the evil desires of our sinful nature, if that battle was over, well, it will be in heaven. But here we are set free to fight. That's what our freedom's about, to grow, to rely upon God's life within us by his spirit to transform us from the inside out and he does it through the word and he does it through 
uh, our wills being empowered by the Spirit to say, Lord, please enable me to live according to this scripture. So we, we need to avoid the sort of perfectionist tendencies. I went, when I went to university, I was a young Christian. There was a group in the University Christian Union who said, we have discovered a secret that now enables us to live sinlessly. Well, I'm in the front of the queue for that, aren't you? Uh, so what's the secret? Well, the secret was a sort of resting, doing nothing, really. Um, we had a little uh, fluorescent card that was put on your desk, and it said, don't wrestle, just nestle. In other words, all you've got to do is jacuzzi Christianity, really. Just lean back uh, into the warm water, and uh, you don't have to do anything. Well, it's very attractive, but the whole group disintegrated within three months um, because they all fell out with one another and nobody could relax enough or whatever it was you were supposed to do. I mean, it's hopeless because it was a perfectionist quest which was not vindicated by Scripture at all. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Metropolitan Tabernacle down at the Elephant and Castle, is still there, still thriving, still preaching the gospel, which is great. Spurgeon says that he had a man once who came to him and said, oh, I've now, I've now reached perfection. Um, I haven't sinned for six months. So Spurgeon said, well, you better come and tell me about it. So they have dinner together. And during the course of the dinner, it becomes clear that the man has simply moved the goalposts. And uh, as he looks at it now, he's, uh, he, he, he doesn't call sin what the Bible calls sin. He's redefined the whole thing. So now, of course, he's sinless. And the story goes that Spurgeon, during the dinner, picked up a glass of water in front of him and threw it into the man's face. Not surprisingly, he was somewhat uh, taken aback by this and began to vent his anger and show that uh, uh, the sin hadn't disappeared. And as Spurgeon said, well, you see, I did that to show you that the old man has not died he simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. <laughs> so avoid the sort of sinless perfection quest, but call upon the strength of the Spirit to fight the good fight of the faith. And the Word of God is the energizing uh, power that he gives us by his Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to do the work of God. There's no other way the work of God gets done. The Word and the Spirit together. The Spirit inspired the Word. The Spirit illuminates the Word. The Spirit uses the Word. And the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God will do the work of God in our lives. So love Christ. Love the Gospel. There's something to avoid. There's something to attempt. There's something to affirm. Now, lastly, what about the second half of the uh, chapter? Living for Christ and the Gospel. And... From the foundations, Paul now moves into the completed house and he considers the furnishings. So before we uh, pray together, let's look at three marks of the life that is living out the gospel. The first is consecration, verses 20, 21. In a large house, there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but wood and clay, some for noble purposes, some for ignoble so if a man cleanses himself from the ignoble, he'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. So it's an interesting picture, isn't it? A large house has special vessels of quality, which the owner, the master of the house, uses for his own personal use and for his special guests at the table, vessels of gold and silver. 
But there are other vessels in the kitchen made of wood and clay, and some may be used as trash cans. You need vessels for all sorts of different things. So the house seems to represent the church in a sense, that those who are called Christians are vessels for noble or ignoble use, and obviously we should aspire to be fit for purpose, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now the point he makes is that this involves cleansing. If a man cleanses himself, our responsibility then is to do everything we can to be useful for Christ, the master, but that will involve holiness. It means, of course, only he can cleanse us, but it means that we're constantly looking to him for that cleansing. Holiness is this idea of being set apart, available for him to use whenever he wants to, at a moment's notice, whatever task he has for us. It's as though the Lord is looking around the house and saying, can I use John? Uh, is, uh, is Michael really set apart to me? Or, or are there sort of ongoing controversies with, um, with God, which means that we're not really much used to him at the moment? See, every day I need to come back to the cross. Every day I need to find that cleansing, which only Jesus can give me. Thank him for what he's done for me. Ask him to enable me to set myself apart today as his instrument to be used by him, made holy, made holy by him, and therefore useful to the master and prepared for every good work. So this is something that will show that we are living for Christ, that day by day we consecrate ourselves to him. I remember reading uh, W.E. Sankster's um, biography. Uh, He was the minister of Westminster Central Hall, the Methodist church just opposite Westminster Abbey, all the way through the war years. He's a very fine preacher of the gospel. And in the biography, it says that he trained himself every morning when he woke up to say, Good morning, Lord, and what are we going to do together today? Now, that's the right way, isn't it, to go into a day. Um, Interesting that it says he trained himself, uh, because it doesn't just happen. But we can actually set ourselves apart. We can cleanse ourselves. We'll have every day to confess our sins and find the fresh forgiveness that comes from Calvary. But Lord... Here I am. I'm your sacrifice today. What are we going to do together today? You go through your diary and think about what's going to happen today. This would be a good thing to pray about, actually, to discuss together in a moment or two. What are the things today that you really need prayer for? You need to be set apart, ready for the master to use you. Some of them are exciting, anticipatory things. Some of them we may be dreading. But whatever the day brings, set yourself apart for him, made holy. Because when Moses was told from the burning bush that the ground he was on was holy ground, it was made holy by the presence of God. So if God is dwelling in our hearts, if we're loving Christ and living for Christ, then the pursuit of holiness, not perfectionism, but more and more like the Lord Jesus, should be the way we live day by day. And he's given us his word and he's given us his spirit to enable us to do that. Consecration, commitment, verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, love, faith, love, and peace. So focus on the inner life here. Interesting, isn't it? There's nothing cowardly about running away from evil. Um, The youthful passions 
maybe passions of the flesh, which, if they're in control, will make us ineffective for God. But in context of Timothy, I think it's much, well, it means as well, certainly, the temptations of the pride of life. The sort of party spirit, the ambition, the arrogance that tempts the pastor-teacher, the impatience, the self-justification that can so easily spoil and mar Christian ministries. Those sorts of passions which are focused on me and what I want. Now, ambition can be a good thing, but it can also be a devastatingly destructive thing if it's not under God's control. So how do you flee those evil desires by the positive, pursuing the good. You pursue righteousness, that is, likeness to the character of Jesus. He says, Timothy, pursue faith, that is, holding on to God's word and the promises that he's given us. Pursue love, that is, the self-giving sacrifice which Jesus gave for us that um, spends everything that we have in order to benefit others so that we live an externally focused life in terms of our love for others. And peace, a quiet poise and confidence. And of course, what he's looking for is not only that in Timothy, it is directed to Timothy, but in the church. The church will be a place where righteousness prevails, where we're helping one another to be more like Christ. Church will be characterized by holding on to the promises of God and especially by the love that exists between brothers and sisters and flows out into the world around us and by the peace of God that passes all understanding, guarding our hearts and minds in our knowledge and love of him. Very simple things, very profound things, very basic things. Pursue them, he says. Don't just nod at them and say, yes, very good. Chase them. Give your effort to it. Make this your ambition. Well, there's a lot here, isn't there, to take in, but it's great to take something like this and maybe pray it through over the next few days. Just take a section of time and pray, today, Lord, let me focus on this commitment. Help me to pursue faith and righteousness, love and peace. Something to work out every day. Lastly, here are the things that uh, he's emphasizing for us. Consecration commitment and Christ-likeness. So he again warns them against the foolish uh, friction-producing quarrels, and he says in verse 23, 24, the Lord's servant mustn't quarrel. Instead, again, look at the negative that is then um, given meaning because of the positive. The one works for the other. Uh, we know we mustn't be quarreling, but how do we do that? Well, we put on the positive. He must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And those whom he, who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Now again, it doesn't mean that Timothy is to tolerate error in the church, but there is a Christ-like way to deal with opposition. Uh, and this is very positive, this last little paragraph. It's always, he's saying, always look for the good of others. Always seek to build others up. You may need to correct, but do it gently, not attacking with arguments, not asserting your power over people, but loving them, serving them, not being resentful when the response is not positive. Keep on doing it. And those who oppose you, Timothy, 
you must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance. You see, you're doing God's work. You're living for Christ and the gospel. So trust God to carry out his work even through our lives. So as we finish, it reminds us that like the master, we're on the rescue mission. We want to liberate the captives of Satan. We want to be agents of God's life-changing power through the gospel. We want evangelism to be our natural um, lifestyle as we share all the good things that Christ has given us with people around us as we have opportunity. And each of us has a unique circle of people. Perhaps no other Christian will touch some of those people. So it's really important that today I'm a vessel set apart for the master's use for noble purposes. And that the way I live is that in the grace of God and independence on him, he might use even my life to grant them repentance and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. So I guess it says to us that the life that you and I will live today, wherever we are, whatever our calling, has the great potential to be in the master's hands, a life that really counts for God. Never underestimate the power of a life that is consistently lived in dependence on Christ and the gospel, in love for Christ and the gospel. That's what we need to be doing day by day. Live the gospel lifestyle in the Spirit's strength. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Well, as we turn in our, prayer to, in our groups to discussion and to prayer, uh, can I suggest that we might um, look at areas in our own lives um, where we feel these sorts of uh, priorities need to be readdressed. Maybe we could share with one another in the group something that's on the agenda today or tomorrow or in the near future where we can see there are these opportunities that we should be vessels that are useful to the master, prepared for any good work. And um, let's pray for one another that we will be able to rightly handle God's word, that we will be people who are uh, grounded on the foundation that God lays, that we are seeking to set apart our lives for him to use them as he wants to. And let's especially ask that today he will use us for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. We sometimes have the good works all lined up that we'd like to do, but any good work that God has for us. It'd be good to just share those things personally and pray them in together. Well, it's just gone eight o'clock, gents. Fantastic to see uh, you all here this morning. David, thank you again for being with us. Um, wow, it's, well, how true it is that the unfolding of uh, God's word brings light. So thank you, David, uh, for being with us again this morning. In two weeks' time, we've got Charles Marnham, the vicar of St. Michael's, speaking to us. Um, and then just a week after that, uh, we're meeting again with Paul Perkin. Uh, there's some works going on here, so... It's the 25th, our next meeting, two weeks' time, and then it's the 2nd of July, just a week after that, and then we have um, a couple of weeks until our final gathering on the 23rd of July. So dates for the diaries. Don't miss out. Um, be blessed. Uh, set yourselves apart. What a challenge this morning. Set yourselves apart, ourselves, for his purposes. He wants to use us. So God bless, guys. Um, let's live for his glory.